Every generation has its own besetting anxieties. My grandfather was a young married man with children when the Great Depression struck. My own father was less than a decade removed from infantry combat in the Second World War when he met my wife, or met my mother, married her, and started his family. My own time was far less demanding than theirs, yet I too was worried as a young man. Tomorrow is our 41st wedding anniversary. And 41 years ago today, I was very, very concerned about how Nell and I were going to make it on my meager salary. I was making $75 a week, and it just didn't add up. I didn't see how in the world we were going to make it, but as you see, we did. Nine years after our wedding, our son was born, and money was still tight, and so were our schedules. Yet all of that paled in comparison to the anxiety I felt on the day of his birth, for he was born by emergency C-section while I was eating breakfast. And my wife says, that's just like you to be eating breakfast as we're having an emergency, but I had a good reason. The doctor had dismissed me from the labor room after a long night of waiting, and he said, why don't you go and get something to eat? I did. and came back and rang the bell to get back in the labor room, thinking all was well, that we still had plenty of time. And about that time, the door swung open, and out walked a doctor I had never seen before, holding a baby. And he said to me, oh, is your name Sims? And I said, yes. And he said, this is your son, and I am rushing him to the neonatal intensive care unit. And when I asked about the well-being of my wife, and the baby, he said only, she's asleep and he's having trouble breathing. And away they went and left me standing there in what I can only describe as the great terror. On this Father's Day, I am bold to say that God is good, that grace is real. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. The great regret I have as a father is that it took so long for me to overcome that initial fear. It was appropriate for me to be anxious that day. But what was not appropriate was for me to continue to linger in that anxiety for years to come. In his seminal book on systems theory, the late Rabbi Edwin Friedman describes how anxiety is so often the energy of family systems. Dr. Friedman says that chronic fear passes from person to person and from generation to generation. It is as if the whole network of familial relationships is charged with worry. Worry that manifest in guilt, in blame, in triangulation, in sabotage, and in self-destruction. And Dr. Friedman says that what is true of families is also true of other social organisms, particularly congregations. The courage to live, he says, the courage to lead consists in our willingness and in our ability to not react to the anxiety. It is to differentiate ourselves, to resist the pressure, to conform to systemic nervousness. It is to act with purpose, 
with intention and with resolve in the face of anxiety. Jesus commands us not to worry. He says this after having emphasized the futility of worshiping money. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth consumes and rust corrodes and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where these things do not happen. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there will be your heart also. You cannot serve God and money, he says. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Having said that, Jesus then says, therefore, on the basis of money's inherent limitation, do not worry. Do not be anxious about your life. The word translated worry or anxious refers to that state of mind that is fixed on things that we can not know or control. It is to be consumed with what-ifs. It is to be occupied by thoughts about a past we cannot change and a future we cannot fully know. Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. And the word translated life there is the same word that is translated elsewhere, soul. It is the totality of life. Do not be worried about your essential life your essential self. We are not to be anxious about our identity, our place in God's kingdom. We are not to worry about what will happen to us ultimately. We trust God with our eternal destiny, do we not? When our time comes to die, do we not trust that God will raise us up? So that if we trust God with our eternal destiny, can we not trust God with the next day? And the day after that and after that. So we need not be anxious about what we will eat or drink or wear. We need not be anxious about tomorrow. We cannot, by being anxious, add anything to our quality of life or our quantity of life. Life, the soul is more than what we eat, it is more than what we drink or wear. Life is who we are, and we are God's beloved. Jesus challenges us to ponder the life around us. He says, take a long look at the birds of the air. The word translated bird comes from the root word to fly, The word translated air or sky is the same word that is often translated as heaven or heavens. Jesus is saying here, the Father in heaven cares for these carefree flyers who soar through the lower regions of his heaven. It's not that birds are idle. It's not that they don't work. They constantly do the things they have to do to stay alive. And some go to extraordinary lengths. Some of you have been on Dauphin Island when the bird drop occurs. And those little winged flyers make their way all the way across the Gulf of Mexico 
and they fall exhausted at Fort Morgan or at Dauphin Island. The birds are busy, but they're not busy with worry. And God cares for them. Not a one of them falls to the ground without the knowledge of God. So it is with the lilies. They last only for a day. Then they are dried, bound up, and burned for kindling. Yet in that one day, they are adorned more beautifully than the wealthiest of the wealthy. God gives them a glory that transcends human creativity and, in fact, inspires human creativity. Consider this, that a single flower can inspire the soul in a way that nothing else can. That is why we bring flowers into this beautiful sanctuary. This sanctuary is a work of art. It is a magnificent expression of human creativity in praise of God. And yet, we still bring in the flowers because they add something that we cannot add ourselves. They live and die in their place, assisted sometimes by humans, but always dependent upon God's good creation. And Jesus says, learn the lesson of the lilies. Indeed, we would do well to remember that most of life on this planet is not human life. All of us humans together constitute only a tiny fraction of the total life of this world. The rest of the world is engaged constantly in the great race to survive. Yet they are not beset by anxiety. It is we alone who live in the great terror that is a distortion of our ability to think and plan ahead. We alone fret over things we can either not control or won't control. The Lord would have us think and feel deeply how wondrous it is that we are alive. We are, after all, the most vulnerable of creatures. And yet, here we are. And we are given dominion over all the rest. Look at the birds, consider the lilies, Jesus says, and strive first for God's kingdom and God's righteousness. If we do that, all else will be given, Jesus says, for God knows that we need these things. And Jesus speaks these words to the poor. These who hear him in that first instance are not people of wealth. They are the poor of the land. And it is to them that Jesus is saying, don't worry about what you will wear or drink or eat. By comparison, we are fabulously wealthy. Our anxiety is not normally over whether we will have enough to eat or drink or wear. Ours is over whether we will have enough to enjoy the good life as we understand it. As our world, our culture tells us it should be. Our nervousness is over whether we will have enough 
to give our children everything they need so that they can fit in with the influential. And the enough that we worry about is money, of course, but it is also all the other things that go along with such a life. The right education, the right circle of friends, the right spouse, the right vocation, the right moral and political values. We worry about whether we and our offspring will make it in such a world to which we think we belong, but we really don't. Indeed, we worry about whether such a world will even make it. And to us, Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, in God's righteousness, are nothing less than our common life in Jesus Christ. God's kingdom is life ordered around the lordship of Jesus. God's kingdom is life centered in grace. It is life in which we know ourselves to be the beloved of God, in which we know ourselves to be God's children who do not have to prove anything to anyone. It is life in which we are free from that most fundamental anxiety of fearing that we cannot have enough or do enough to make it. It is life that knows that we are held in the heart of the compassionate God who created and orders all things. Life in God's kingdom is life in which we are made stewards of everything. Of the birds, of the flowers, of the seas, the mountains, the deserts, the marshes, the prairies the skies. Life in God's kingdom is knowing that there is more than enough of everything for everyone. It is to live in that amazing space in which we learn to trust the Lord, to care faithfully for what God has entrusted to us, and to share generously from the abundance of God's gifts. That is God's kingdom, and if you don't think it ever exists, read the first four chapters of Acts. Those first Christians understood this, and accordingly they shared everything, and Luke says there was not a needy person among them. Of all the things that I might give my children and my grandchildren, of all the things you might give your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors, the most valuable thing you could ever give anyone is knowledge of this reality. And by knowledge, I don't mean information. I mean the first-hand experience of it. Rabbi Friedman was right. Anxiety is passed from generation to generation. That anxiety is the essence of the fallenness of this world. If my grandchildren and my children, if your grandchildren and your children could see in us, could know from being in our presence, 
the great compassion of their Heavenly Father. This would be worth more than all the rest. It would be the very, very best. If we could be that non-anxious presence, that deeply trusting presence, that generous presence, that kind presence, then that will make all the difference in them and in us. It would be the best that we could give them, and it would make all the rest be given in the best way possible. And that is what we want, is it not? For our children, for our grandchildren, for our nieces and nephews and neighbors of the next generation. Several years ago, I was visiting with my spiritual director and was expressing concern for my children and that old nagging anxiety was there. And my spiritual director said to me, why are you so anxious for them? They're grown now. They're on their own. What are you afraid of? And I really couldn't name it. It was just there. It was just there. I couldn't name it. It was just anxiety. And she said to me, what do you think would happen to them if they were to die? I said, they would go to be with the Lord. I am convinced of that. And they said, she said, well, why are you worried? They're held by the love of God. And the very best thing you could give them, she said, was not to worry. It was the best advice I think I've ever received about being a parent. Friends, we live in an anxious world. Our families are beset by anxiety. Our culture is set beset by it. The church is beset by it. The very best thing we can do is to have the courage to live and to lead from a non-anxious place, a place of deep trust in the goodness of God. We sing hymn number 144. It is a rousing affirmation that this is my Father's world. It mentions the lilies white, the lilies that Jesus referred to were probably purple, not white. But we'll sing of the white lilies nevertheless. Let us stand and sing with great faith, number 144.